Hello, and welcome to this special edition podcast on the retail sector. I'm Harriet Russell, sector's editor at the Investors Chronicle and retail correspondent for the magazine. It's been a turbulent year for British shop owners. At the start of the year, equity ratings within the sector were flying high, but it wasn't long before the introduction of the national living wage, the Brexit vote, the subsequent derating in sterling, an unusually warm autumn, and now the volatility associated with a Trump victory started causing widespread havoc. Over the course of this year, I conducted several interviews with retail experts who lent their expertise in order to evaluate what investors should do when considering a retail-based investment. The release of this programme is also good timing. We're approaching what is traditionally retailers' peak season, kicking off with Black Friday and culminating in the January sales. We started by talking to IC editor and the magazine's former retail correspondent, John Heumann, about what he learnt observing the sector and what he thinks some of the biggest challenges are. I started by asking him what he thinks the modern British shopper looks like and what they want when they go shopping. It's the uh, the age-old question for retailers and, you know, they spend a lot of time and effort trying to understand who their shoppers are. Marks and Spencers, we heard last year, it's new chief exec talking about Mrs M&S. So, you know, they, they think they have an idea of who their customer is, but is that the customer of tomorrow? The supermarket retailers, we kind of know that they all have very different customer groups that they're going after, but the lines there are becoming very blurred. And more often than not, they won't see their shopper at a shop because obviously online means many people actually do much of their shopping uh, over the internet. But obviously the the advantage to a retailer of that is they actually can understand more about their customers. The data they get uh, allows them to profile them much more effectively. So I think in that respect, life has become a bit easier for retailers because the data is enabling them to understand who they're selling to a bit better. So one person we got in to discuss these themes in even greater detail and in the context of a book he's written on the subject was Harry Wallop, who, as a writer, editor and journalist, has spent many years analysing the retail industry and the demographics which shape it. His debut book, Consumed, puts forward the argument that modern consumers are largely defined by where they shop and what they buy. It's a signal to those around us about who we are and even comes down to what we choose to eat for lunch. Ultimately, it's an argument rooted in definitions of the British class system. So, Harry, let's start there. Your concept of the retail industry appears to me that consumers aren't altogether passive, but still sort of largely influenced into certain patterns of behaviour. And that behaviour is shaped by retail corporations who have spent years collecting data and information on their customers in order to keep track of their activity and manipulate marketing and branding campaigns to entice them in. But I'm sure plenty of people listening to this podcast, and this is something you actually point out in the book too, would think they're just, quote, middle class. They're happy with that label and ultimately they believe their choices are still their own and that they've made up their own minds. So let's start with a short question, although it might have a long answer. (laughs) Are shoppers not more individualistic and savvier than ever? Is it actually possible for retailers to homogenise their customers and target a core anymore? Well, I think they can. And I think the most successful retailers do target core customer. And it's really fascinating that during the last few years, if we were to take, say, the supermarket industry, the ones who really excelled are right at the very top end, which is Waitrose, and right at the very bottom end, which is Aldi and Lidl and Iceland. Of course, Aldi and Lidl will claim that they are not right at the bottom end and that they, of course, have lots of BMWs and Mercedes famously in their car parks. But I think retailers who really target a niche, uh, who know exactly the demographic they want to go for, have, as a general rule, obviously one can generalise a bit too much, have done a lot better than those who try to be all things to all people. I mean, the big squadgy MSs of this world have really struggled to straddle all the different, and we can call them classes, we can call them uh, socioeconomic demographic groupings, or we can call them all those strange little terms that all the data companies use, like white collar aspirant or or rust belt depressed and all sorts of other slightly demeaning uh, terms like that. In your view, and I'm aware this is a big question, what do you think retailers are doing right or wrong in getting to know their customers and keeping them coming through the doors? Is it as simple as price versus quality and therefore a value for money equation? 
Well, I suppose a perception of value for money is often more important than whether it really is value for money. People do love a bargain, and that sounds really obvious, and even people right at the very top end love a bargain. Again, one of the really fascinating things that's come out in the last few years is how the pound shops, where obviously half the population just don't shop in pound shops, but the pound shops have influenced how lots of other people have started to sell products. So even the Waitrose end, and certainly very much Sainsbury's, really adopted that red sticker screaming one pound or two pound, the round pound pricing strategy. So when I was growing up, it was all 199s or 279s. And now it's mostly, uh, though not always, a quite clear pound because it again is a perception of value and people really want to feel like they've got value in their basket and also actually wonderfully it's for people who struggle according to some senior retailer it's for people who struggle with uh, mental arithmetic and we like to get to the till with a clear awareness of what we've got in our basket and there are all sorts of shoppers I can't do this but get to the till and, and have a, a pretty clear idea that I have a £31 basket in my hand or I have a £17 basket and if you've got round pound pricing you can do that I can't but there we go (laughs) and one point I feel that comes across in the book is that shoppers behavior is inherently constructed by social patterns which are the result of the political landscape more often than not you you make the reference to the liberation from meat rationing in 1954 for instance as a seminal change for Britain's food industry now that the UK has entered a post-referendum and soon one assumes a post-Brexit economy what if anything do you expect will happen is it dependent on entering another recession, for example, about how shoppers' trends might change in the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Gosh, post-Brexit, we just don't know, though the assumption is that inflation will start ticking up for all sorts of reasons, mostly labour costs going up. All those things that aren't just fresh fruit picked in the fields of East Lincolnshire by immigrant labour, but all the other things that actually are packed in warehouses – I've spent a disproportionate amount of my working career going around food factories. And I'm always slightly surprised by the instructions on the side to workers invariably in Polish or Czech before we get to English, because that's just the way the modern British economy works. So if further down the line that labour starts to go home and we have to increase uh, wages to encourage local um, people to come and work in those places, uh, then presumably prices go up. I'm not sure it necessarily is always as simple as that. And and the retail industry has done a pretty decent job, certainly recently, in absorbing higher costs. My initial sort of theory that we are very influenced by the retailers does come down to actually very old-fashioned geography of basically where the shops are. And we all have a sense that certain areas are, quote-unquote, nice areas, and you endlessly get headlines on, ooh, a John Lewis in your area increases the house prices, which is, in fact, was slightly flawed statistical research. But let's just go with that, that having a Waitrose or John Lewis is good for the area. And then we all can walk down local high streets and we see the betting shops and the pound shops and the cash checking shops. And we just know that that's not such a nice area. So the retailers do set the tone for the area. Now, obviously, in the internet era, that is less of a necessarily a strong force. Though what is interesting, and I suppose what I sort of made a stab at in the book, is that even internet retailers still use these very finessed social uh, rankings to work out how they market to people. So you will get a different email than I will from the same company. We will log on. I mean, Tesco have pioneered this. You can log on to the Tesco homepage and your homepage will be actually different from my homepage because of your cookie and your browsing history and far more sophisticated versions of that. And when we get to facial recognition software, God help us all. So we all think we're terribly individual. We have a completely open uh, landscape to pick and choose from. But I think it's actually more complicated than that. And the retailers still occasionally have the upper hand over us. And consumer trends, you make plenty of references throughout the book, actually, through all the chapters about the most recent financial crisis and how shopping trends again sort of shifted to align with what was going on. In a nutshell, what do you think trends emerge out of a more fiscally tight regime? Well, the pound shops, uh, which were completely under the radar before the recession, are now very much a, a leading force. The discount supermarkets, and what, then was all the big shake-up. And what was fascinating about the, the collapse of Woolworths and all the tears that were shed, and I was very sad because I rather like Woolies, was the assumption that the high street was just going to be a smaller place than it had previously been. And this was a watershed moment. And again, internet retailers, why do we need all these shops? As I understand it, looking at local data company, which is a, it sounds like a, it's a data set, but LDC is a company who look at actual physical shops on the high street. As I understand it, there are now 
just as many shops, if not slightly more, than before Woolworths collapsed. So all those Woolies that did collapse, for instance, within two years have been completely filled. And they've been filled, again, uh, the wonders of geography, depending on what area they were in. So my one in quite upmarket Islington was filled with a Waitrose, uh, but most were filled with B&M Bargains. They're a massive retailer. I mean, no one had heard of B&M Bargains uh, five or six years ago. They were a small uh, Northwest based company. And now uh, they're what they're worth X billion pounds. And are they in the FTSE 250? 250. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, th- I mean, that's a hugely successful company that came from almost nowhere. So all these shops got you know, they got filled. So there are just as many shops and we are doing just as much shopping as ever before. But now with that slight nervousness, the retail industry point out that maybe this is now finally shifting. So though we haven't got fewer shops, we might possibly be spending our money on things other than shops, such as the cinema or such as going out. Um, And of course, during the depths of the recession, we didn't do that. Bizarrely, we actually, the supermarket benefited. Uh, You know, those £10 price deals that M&S pioneered, you know, the ready meal with the side dish and the bottle of wine for £10. It was such an influential deal. And it completely changed how all the other supermarkets started to promote their sort of upmarket ranges. So we didn't go out to restaurants as much and we stayed in a little bit more and the supermarkets benefited. And that now seems to be shifting the other way. So I don't know how much further that will go. But that was a really interesting phenomenon of the recession. One trend that doesn't seem to be going anywhere is price deflation. I must talk about it every single day with analysts or companies that are involved in that in some way. In your view, is there a real end to price deflation? Obviously, now the discussion is revolves a, a lot around the, the introduction of the new living wage and, and how that inevitably is going to push the cost base up for for a lot of retailers. And, and also now a lot of them are dealing with having to hedge against currency and things like that post-referendum. So in your view, is the race to the bottom potentially the end is nigh? Deflation. Yes, I am fascinated by deflation. I was looking at uh, which the consumer group had a real bash at supermarkets for promoting unhealthy food and not promoting fruit and veg. And I was looking at the price of a cucumber. And this is another aspect of the recession. Uh, The cucumber has become, for some utterly bizarre reason, the stick uh, with which most supermarkets fight the price war. It used to be tins of baked beans in the 1990s. It's now the cucumber. So the cucumber in Aldi, the last time I looked, was, if I'm right, as low as 32 pence for a whole cucumber. Now, I think cucumbers are mostly a waste of time, but there's an awful lot of families who do like cucumbers. And bizarrely, they actually end up, I think, frequently in the top three items put into the baskets by volume by families in Britain. It's semi-skim milk, then it's a bunch of bananas, and then a cucumber. Who knew? Well, we've learned something today. So the cucumber is 32, 33 pence in Aldi. And I was looking through the cuts, desperately to find out when was the last time a cucumber was this cheap. And it was back in the 1980s. So cucumbers have just not changed in price, or rather they've gone up in price, then they've gone down in price. So can the cucumber go lower than the 32 pence? Well, in baked bean wars during the 1990s, we got to a situation where I think, if I'm right, and someone will correct me, quick save actually went into negative territory. They actually gave away tins of baked beans in order to get customers through the door. So, yes, you you could always go lower. Uh, In the cucumber scenario, I, I don't think it's possible to go much lower because, yes, a lot of things, particularly fresh produce, and most things we buy in the shops are, are surprisingly labour intensive. So if labour is your main cost and the cost of labour goes up through national living wage and through the effect of Brexit and cheap labour going back to Eastern Europe, then one, you know, logically it has prices have to start ticking up. And also we have got used to terribly cheap prices. And I think the consumer could absorb a little bit more. It's not politically very fashionable to say this, but we have got very cheap prices and I think we could all afford to pay a little bit more, certainly for things like food and drink, than we previously did. I mean, the big figure thing is after, you know, after the war and after food rationing, we spent a third of all our disposable income on food and drink and it's now... 16, 17%. I mean, that's a massive, massive fall. So there is, you know, with, within normal households, if they think hard to where they used to be, there is capacity to spend a bit more money on retail. Let's talk about the high street as well, because obviously pricing and price deflation is, is not just a phenomenon limited to the food industry. I particularly like talking about the high street in the context of obviously, we you mentioned it earlier, online retail and the advent that we've seen in that business, basically since ASOS came into play at the beginning of the millennia. And I think the question there is, 
obviously our industry and people working as analysts and commentators on this industry are obsessed with what we call high street footfall. And that is basically the number of people who are still going out shopping. We just had figures for July, actually, very recently. And the figures were encouraging. They were particularly in sort of a post-vote context. People were very cheered to see the idea that people are still going out and shopping. What I think a lot of the broadsheets failed to kind of pick up on was that July is obviously a very heavy season for promotional activity. And I'm sure there was a sense that people think, oh, best get a bargain before we leave the EU and everything goes to pot. Um, However simplistic that view might be. It would be interesting to know your perspective on the high street and how you think it's possible for high street retailers. And by that, I'm really thinking about big traditional chains, people like Next, Debenhams, for example, to really still be able to say, you know, those companies have huge online operations. What is it that they can do to get people through the doors? Or is that even really necessary? Well, I think it is necessary to get people through the doors unless you're going to take a radically different approach and close down half your shops. And most, apart from the fact that lots of people are tied into very onerous leases, which would make it very difficult to shut half their stores. I think a lot of shoppers like shops. And that sounds really silly. Uh, but people, a lot of people like shopping. And internet retailing has never quite managed to match that magic. A lot of people see it as a chore, but people who like shopping like shopping. I mean, the interesting thing is how there are more, again, I was looking at the anniversary of Brent Cross opening, which is the first indoor shopping centre of Britain, which was 40 years ago, and how many more shopping centres there are in recent years. And they've become places of leisure. And yes, for many people, Saturday afternoon in Westfield is sort of hell on earth, but there is shopping, there is eating opportunities, there's bowling, there's cinemas, it's the whole gamut, and that's the same with the high street. So the the fascinating one is 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 seeing how pure online retailers do still feel a bit nervous about not having a presence on the high street at all. And you see these little experiments, and they are only experiments. There is an Amazon bookshop famously. It's a bit of a stunt and it's a bit of a gimmick but there is that nervousness that you do need to have a presence the far more interesting one is the model that john lewis has adopted whereby they have now tie-ups with for instance loaf which is an online only furniture retailer uh, and they've done it with a couple of fashion people as well and those online only retailers really miss massive chunks of shoppers by being online only and john lewis particularly opens huge doors to them. Um, and then John Lewis also loves the fact that they get hold of those brands. So, I, I, you know, this whole kind of merging of online and offline, which has been happening for a long time with Click and Collect, is also happening with brands. So I think, you know, the likes of Debenhams, their, their shops are too big. A lot of their shops are too big. I mean, I was in a house of Fraser in Manchester only last week, and on the top floor, it was just deserted. And I did think, oh, my gosh, you just can't continue like this you're going to either have to sell off some of the space or you're going to have to get other brands in to take the fact that you are in an amazing location with huge amount of people just passing. And, and literally, you know, it is the old cliche, window shopping coming in. If you have fantastic windows, it's still, it still does make a difference. So I do, I do think the high street has a huge future. And I go back to the fact that when Woolies uh, collapsed, everyone thought, oh, it's the end of the high street. And then we have now more shops than we used to have. It has a huge future, but it's got to take the best of the online retailers, uh, encourage them to take a part in the high street. And we're going to have to see fewer shops. We, you know, we do have Britain has too many shops. It is as simple as that. So we are going to have to get used to a few more collapses like BHS and those shops not being filled by other shops, but being filled by offices or by uh, residential. Okay, let's talk now about consequences post-Brexit, John. First of all, a major issue for retailers always has been costs. And post-Brexit, one of the biggest consequences has obviously been the weakness in sterling. Prior to the vote, the biggest concern was actually the introduction of things like the new living wage and and what that might do for costs. Would it be a price increase versus a margin hit, etc.? Now that sterling's a lot weaker than it was pre-vote, those concerns have intensified dramatically. So I think the first question to ask is, to what extent is this going to be a long-term issue? Currency is not something I fret about uh, very much at all, because I believe that currencies swing one way and then they swing the other. They become too cheap, they become too expensive. And prior to Brexit, you know, a lot of thoughts was that sterling was, in fact, marginally overvalued. Yeah. And all that the referendum has done is essentially bring it more into line with where it should be trading against other major currencies. So I think that's an important thing to know. And, you know, I think in the future it will get stronger. 
at times and it will get weaker at times. You know, retailers have gone through some pretty major currency swings before. Um, you know, there have been occasions when it, where the sterling was incredibly expensive versus the dollar. You know, you could have almost buy uh, $2 for a pound probably about you know, a decade ago. Um, and, and that would have had a tremendous impact on retailers' costs because obviously a lot of their buying currency is, is dollars. So yeah, they got through that. I think this is this is you know kind of a, a small ripple compared to the wave that 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 once was. And, and and yes, I just think that currency swings are a natural part of markets, and we shouldn't get too het up about them. Okay. However, it is still an issue on their plate, at least for the next sort of twelve months, reporting wise. It's a short term um, issue. Yeah. Let's talk about less to do with currency, because obviously for some retailers, that's purely a translational impact. If they don't have to buy in dollars, then it's just translational if if, you, if they're selling in dollars elsewhere. If they are buying in dollars, obviously it's a transactional difference and they might have to sort of put an awful lot more of adjusted numbers in there to sort of make you give sort of an underlying impression. That's all to come. However, other retailers are tackling things like the new living wage, which are a permanent change and they are only going to get higher for the next three or four years or so if you're a retailer what do you think the best way to tackle it is would you raise your price or would you squeeze your margin i think they're going to struggle to raise prices too much in the current environment because you've got to remember you know the natural living wage uh, may be a problem but wages generally uh, haven't risen very quickly for quite some time so that obviously has kept their cost down perhaps artificially for a while and you could also argue that it's limited the appetite of households to spend because they haven't had large pay increases coming through which they can go and then splurge in the shops but yeah it, it is a difficult issue i don't think they'll you know price increases uh, will necessarily work. I think there's too much competition in the retail sector. I think there's a lot of competition online from pure play retailers. You know, I can I can find the same product uh, online 20% cheaper than I can uh, if I go into a, a shop that has a, an expensive branch network to maintain. So pricing, yeah, I think it's largely out of the control of the retail industry. You have to have a very you know, unique product or a very special brand and a special relationship with your customers to be able to get away with putting prices up too quickly. I think there's, interestingly, there's quite a sort of fall on your sword notion to this as well in that wages are sort of this very politically charged thing, especially when you've got sort of basic wages or, or minimum wages. And if the retailers can be seen to sort of take the impact themselves heroically in the margin rather than trying to pass on any kind of impact to the poor customer who's blessed them done nothing it sort of stands them in quite good stead I think for them to say yeah look our margins down maybe 150 basis points max but actually we've had to do that because we're paying people more and we're making it fairer and we're abiding by the law and that's that I mean do you think there's scope for that or is that maybe idealistic it's quite idealistic i don't think that necessarily makes them very good investments. You know, if you're giving away margin in a difficult market already, then profits are not going to go in the right direction very quickly. So it's a strategy if they want to kind of stand still, but not one that as an investor I would look at and think, oh yeah, I want a part of that. Yeah, I mean the main the main option for them is to try and trim the fat elsewhere, isn't it? So cutting costs. Yeah. So a company like WH Smiths, which is one of my favourite retailers that, that I tipped as a, uh, as a correspondent covering the sector a while back. WH Smiths has for many years been in a, in a kind of declining market. You know, it's, it's largely a magazine and book retailer and we know what's happening to those markets. We work in that industry. You know, a lot of that's moving uh, online uh, into digital only. It's been tough for them uh, music and video dvd you know amazon has basically stolen that market as well pretty much in its entirety so wh smith has, has had a sort of declining top line and it it strategically tries to address this by moving it into travel businesses so you know actually places where people are on the go and don't really have time to be price conscious airports and uh and and train stations uh, but it's also focused incredibly on costs and you know it's tried to take cost out of that business everywhere it can and we're talking about things like you know replacing the light fittings in its shops with energy efficient light fittings which saves it millions of pounds a year and there's all sorts of things like this that it does and i think you know there's a lot of that sort of fat which is the right sort of fat to take out that i think a lot of retailers still got to catch up with so i think there's scope for them to cut costs further still if they haven't done it already yeah, well, we'll wait and see. Let's talk about sort of the, the wider correction that the sector went under. I mean, I've got some figures here today. Prior to the vote, the, the sector as a whole was trading around really quite high multiples. At the beginning of this year, it was quite shocking. A lot of it was priced for quality and a lot of it was trading around 19, 20 times earnings. The day 
basically of the vote of of the vote outcome the Friday that corrected and it went down to 15 which in my ancient experience <laughs> is about the right price I would like to be paying for well, the sector and I think a lot of Share prices have got very overheated over the last few years of low interest rates and uh, accommodative monetary policy. But, you know, retail is a cyclical business. It's, it's up and down. And paying 22 times earnings for something that, you know, will go through a lean period at some point is a bit rich. And, you know, I was talking to an analyst last night about, and it's slightly beyond retail, Restaurant Group mm-hmm. being a classic example of this. You know, Restaurant Group shares were in the 20s, yeah. forward PE. But they were a stock market darling and everyone was prepared to pay that price. And then... Management the growth, change. The growth <laughs> ran out. And yeah. you know what uh, this analyst said to me, which I think was very important and actually is reflected across the retail industry as a whole, is that, you know, a lot of these companies are, are justifying their multiple, keeping the like-for-like sales growth going by expanding and expanding mm. and expanding, opening new sites. But then they become mature and the market becomes saturated and there's nowhere to go and there will be a profit warning. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say like for likes because obviously what we're talking about with new openings is total sales growth. Yeah. And what that did at Restaurant Group in particular, I mean, this was a stock that I covered for a long time, even before I came to this magazine. And what that did was effectively cannibalise the like for likes at all of the existing state sites that were already open and already trading. A dreadful strategy. Indeed. I remember uh, a company that I really took a dislike to uh, when I was covering the retail sector, which was Game Group, mm. which is back it in is a back. slightly different form. But it went bust. And the reason it went bust, ultimately, I think one was that the market turned against it in terms of the console cycle. So it was selling video games and video game consoles. And uh, there weren't enough new releases to sustain the, the level of sales that it needed to operate. And the reason it needed to keep those sales coming in at such a high level was because it had bought its main rival. It had expanded enormously. And there were, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of stores across the UK, including in some cases two or three in the same town. How many video games retailers do you need in one shopping precinct? Mm. And this is an interesting point because it brings to mind Jules, which is a company that just floated in May. And it's early days. I'm not going to jump on anyone's bandwagon just yet. But what has impressed me about that group so far and, and the chat that I had with management this week is that their store estate, their physical store estate is pretty lean. And they don't have huge ambitions to open hundreds and hundreds more sites. I mean, the pub groups are some of the worst. They will tell you that they intend to, you know, reach thousands by two years' time or something. Mm. Jules at the moment has 97 operating stores in the UK and Ireland. And it's maximum sort of capacity that it's really looking at in the medium term. So we're talking maybe up to five years is about 150. I think that probably suits a business like Jules. I mean, it's quite a specialist retailer. Yeah. Uh, it's upmarket clothing, without a shadow of a doubt. I saw a couple of its stores over the summer, in fact, in the seaside resorts of Southwold and Albra. That's its market. Is a Jewel going to be opening in most towns across the UK? Probably not. I don't think there's a customer appetite for its highly, quite expensive clothing in many places across the UK, among certain demographic groups. And actually, that takes you back to the point about a core customer. Mm, Jules absolutely. has to know who its customers are, where they live, where it should expand. To get a bit of a wider perspective on the macroeconomic picture and what it means for the retail sector, I spoke to analyst Ken Odaluga over at City Index. I started off by asking him what point he thought we were at in the economic cycle and what this means for investors. We're in a, an era of quantitative easing or central bank meddling more broadly and that kind of tends to skew things uh, from the way that we normally expect things to be so it's difficult to ascertain exactly where we are in the cycle but I do believe that we appear to be reaching uh, a peak in terms of uh, a cyclical manner of things you know that we expect to appear to to appear in in that type of order we'll be at the near the peak of the cycle. And of course what puts that definition into even more sort of sharp contrast is recent political events which have been equally as tumultuous and I mean the broadsheet press for instance is making an awful lot of fuss of any kind of economic figures that are released at the moment whether they're manufacturing or retail. Retail has obviously beaten expectations particularly for the month of July whereas manufacturing and output figures are disappointing. So how do you try and make sense of those various up and down trends and what do you think it really tells us about the British economy? I do pay a great deal of attention to what the Bank of England says and the finer details of what the Bank of England says. 
So the Bank of England has embarked on what I think is fair to describe as a precautionary uh, set of measures. But on even having done that, it appears to be very, very keen to stress that as far as the actual real terms impact of the um, economic events that we've experienced over the last few months, we simply don't know. In fact, we actually don't know, um, speaking empirically. We know what we expect to happen. We know what is likely. We know what the risks are. But we don't actually have most of the hard facts yet because they haven't had time to feed through the system. So I, I do sort of take on board the, you know, the dire PMI readings that we ha- we've had, the sort of uh, signals, the hints of a slowdown in, uh, in inflation, even if it didn't actually appear at the, on the top line of the recent figures that we had. But nevertheless, I, I'm trying to keep a mind which is as open as possible uh, in order that I can react with the most optimum uh, intelligence, if you like, for when we do actually have some hard definitive figures. For investors, what sort of actions are you advising? Are you advising long views, short views? And what are the benefits of sort of taking each of those measured approaches? So for investors, the action they take will very much depend on their own particular investment aims and goals and preferences, including risk preferences. So long term, short term will be very much dependent on the individual or the, you know, some other top level approach that they have adopted. For the long-term investor, it's certainly a time of great opportunity. That's the fundamental sort of like plank of of, our view for the long term. For the short term, it's as ever, perhaps more so than ever, all about risk management. Maybe not all, but certainly a very, very large part of it is about risk management. There are opportunities to be had um, which exploit both the parlous state of uh, of sterling and the worries that we've got with respect to the economic um, uh, future. But nevertheless, you need to be able to get in and get out very, very quickly and also to actually have measures in place to actually um, ensure that any sort of like um, blow up that happens in terms of your plan doesn't uh, sort of put you out of action completely. Yeah, it's a good point and, and one that leads us more specifically to talk about the retail industry quite nicely. This sector is one that is risky at all times and it's one of the hardest to predict. It's one Absolutely. of the hardest to forecast mm. anyway. So now I think it would be prudent to understand, you know, listeners of this podcast are going to be listening because they are interested in investing in retail specifically. So what do you think are the sort of top tips or top things that investors should be looking at or for when considering different retail equities for their portfolio? Yes, um, you know, we can engage in all sorts of levels of complexity here, Harriet. Broadly speaking, uh, we start from the recognition that the retail industry is amongst perhaps the most exposed to sterling. And that right now that means sterling's collapse. But on the other hand, um, you need to introduce another level of that where you've got the weakness of sterling and possibly, depending on input costs, the benefits that that brings because a company is able to uh, buy in sterling and sell in other currencies or at least have most of its costs in sterling. So we need to sort of like bear in mind that that's a sort of like a, head, a potential tailwind, but also a potential headwind for you know, the larger groups, which, um, you know, uh, tend to be very exposed to sterling, like you, the large supermarkets, Tesco, Sainsbury, uh, Morrison and so on and so forth. For the people that manufacture many of their goods outside of the UK, and therefore they are perhaps still uh, buying in sterling or buying in other currencies, they may actually get some sort of at least moderate to maybe uh, perhaps more significant benefit from uh, that. And then we need to think about, um, let's move beyond the, uh, the sort of like the currency uh, picture and think about the economic outlook, the sort of macroeconomic uh, position that we're in right now. We know that there seems to be some sort of like a surge of retail activity, broadly speaking. Some of that is um, quite clearly domestically driven. But some of that, in fact, what we're learning to be a large proportion of that appears to be from uh, overseas, as it were. So um, activity uh, brought uh, sort of like fueled by overseas visitors. Now, with that in mind, it may make sense to actually look for the uh, sort of retail players that particularly uh, uh, focus or face towards uh, that phenomena, if you want to put it in such a, a large word. Um, so then we think about the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of department stores, the sort of like large, you know, big name department stores. 
Most of them aren't listed, of course, but the ones that are, um, perhaps Debenhams, perhaps would have a bit of a headwind from its central London stores. But also, of course, the companies which are tilted towards uh, travel and also retail as well. So perhaps your WH Smith, a very, very strong name for at one point, um, the outperforming retailer of the entire United Kingdom, certainly before the referendum, uh, for similar reasons, very well runs, great cash position, has had a lot of the sort of like evolution towards um, new forms of retailing with uh, uh, computerized co- uh, um, supply management that many of the larger retailers are currently experiencing now. So it's got that sort of like speed bump behind it and it can sort of like capitalize on benefits, including this one uh, that we appear to be seeing, an uptick, uptick in tourism with some retail attached to it. So names like that, um, those would be, be the main uh, sort of like points I'd have in mind overall. Are there any players in your mind that are getting it absolutely right and keeping up with sort of how the industry changes day to day? I would have said uh, yes. Um, I think there are absolutely some great players getting it right. But the problem is um, with the advent of the internet and online shopping e-commerce in general, it, it seems to change a lot faster. <laughs> so, for instance, where Next appeared to have, um, Next PLC, the clothing retailer, appeared to have it just about right um, for many, many years with its um, uh, next directory um, sort of online um, offer growing at a very, very good rate, well above the average growth rate for internet shopping and even above the average growth rates for internet um, fashion shopping, which tends to be a bit uh, faster. Um, But nevertheless, they seem to start uh, sounding notes of caution um, along with the sort of like uh, caution they were sounding over their broader retail operations at the beginning of the year. Lord Wolfson was quite keen to stress that he didn't expect to see a great deal of Brexit um, impact, but clearly there, from our point of view, there was. But over and above that, it, it appears to be that other players are catching up in their sort of like online sophistication. The market is changing. The consumption habits are changing. The demographic profile is, profiles are changing. Younger people from the, who are 17, 18 are coming up to their 20s. Younger people who are not in their teens are now in their teens. And they appear to be very, very strongly tilted to the smaller internet based internet only based um, retail environment led perhaps by ASOS uh, and other names too. In that environment and next having done all the hard work um, for over a two or three or four years, if it kind of like blinks for an instant, it's, it's going to find itself a few steps behind and that's exactly what's happened. Following on from this discussion with Ken, I headed for brokerage Peel Hunt and retail analyst John Stevenson, who gave me his thoughts on the sector's direction this year and what he looks for in a good retail stock. Go back to Christmas, the sector was basically trading on a 10-year high. So, you know, PEs were high teen. And you could just tell that they weren't going to get the earnings momentum to actually justify those kind of ratings. So as you came into New Year, what we saw, and the only time the retail sector tends to move as a unit, is on the big macro stuff. So last year, disposable income's picking up, the whole sector comes up. Coming into the New Year, we saw really investors look to other sectors. You didn't get the upgrades we needed, and the whole sector sold off. So what what you hadn't had at that point was a sort of sorting of the wheat from the chaff, if you like. So a lot lot of pressures, whether it's, you mentioned, the weather's one of those things, but it does have big short-term impacts. But more importantly, stuff like online shift, again, took another leg forward, the pressures of living wage. And so we, we sort of cut the sector in two almost. You've got the what we call the structural growth retailers. And these are the companies that are, are delivering effectively double digit sales growth, typically from online, probably international exposure, maybe a store rollout. So companies tend to be the fashion online guys like you know Asos or Boohoo it could be Dunelm in terms of its, its UK store rollout JD Sports uh, the discounters like B&M to Baker Supergroup there's not actually Majestic Wine there's not that many names of sort of you know good basically structural growth businesses and, and what we thought we'd see would be those businesses push on forward and it would be the mid-market that suffered and so that that's kind of the sort out we'd expected to see. Yeah, the macro environment's always a consideration. But I think what was interesting before the vote was also we'd seen some very specific recovery stories starting to play out. M&S is a good example here. To what extent do you think those sorts of plans, Debenhams, I know, is is another one that you've watched closely. Um, To what extent do you think those plans are now sort of 
even more challenged than they were before. You know, they had work to do. They now have potentially a lot more work to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, if you think, you know, what are the pressures on the retailers, you know, in terms of, of where we stand, you know, you, you look at margin pressure and obviously the, the shift in, in primarily dollar for the, for the clothing retailers, it's going to make a difference. Now, most of them are covered for, you know, up to 18 months ahead. So it's not an immediate pressure. But they're constantly buying, you know, dollars for the buyers to be able to fix a price, you know, as the collections are put together. So it will have an impact on the business. It's something they're going to have to look at. And then there's the wider issue in terms of whether the consumers retrench or not. That's sort of an interesting point because it's hard for anyone in this room, except perhaps a very specifically trained economist, to really decide whether a recession is possible. We've done some exploratory work on it in terms of just how it possible a recession is and, and how much it might mimic 2008. Do you get the feeling from your clients that they're sort of worried about that? Or do you think they're sort of treading water for now and just sort of trying to keep their heads down business as usual and see what comes? I mean, it's very interesting, because again, in terms of what's actually happening on the high street now, things are basically fine. Mm. So, you know, John Lewis data this week, sales are up 2%, you know, double digit, I think 15% growth in bedroom furniture. So it's, you know, it's a big ticket item, no sign of a slowdown there. We had we've had a, a car dealership out this morning. You know, numbers at the end of June are fine, and okay, yeah, you know, we also had the the SMMT figures today as well in terms of you know June's car data was slightly negative, but again, it's in the context of where we come from, it's not bad. It's holding up. Tops Tiles trading statement this morning, you know, six percent like for like sales growth. Carpet right the day after the Brexit vote on the Saturday, double digit like for like sales growth. So in terms of actually at the coal face, we're not really seeing signs of a slowdown. And there's definitely, I spend a lot of my time up in, in Manchester, and there's there's a real difference between the time I spend in London and, and outside of London. You, know, you can feel the weight of the referendum around the market. Obviously, you know, everyone's looking at screens. When you get out in the real world, yes, people aren't necessarily happy about the result, but half the country voted for it, uh, and they're carrying on their lives quite normally. So, you know, until we start to see impact on a house price or on you know, and actually, if there's going to be an impact on interest rates, are probably going down. But you know, these are the sort of the, the issues that would drive people. So, you know, the inflationary pressures we're talking about, you know, petrol and food will come through relatively quickly. Most of it's for next year. So you wouldn't expect the consumers to be. There is an element of whether they'll actually retrench from a the sort of the, the sort of media noise in terms of what will happen. But certainly, you know, there's no need for them in terms of what they're seeing at the moment. Interestingly, leading up to the vote, we'd seen some actually, as you said, the sector was trading on on a high around Christmas. And just literally a few weeks before, we'd seen a couple of really encouraging IPOs in the space as well. Hotel Chocolat had come to market and and Jules, and they had done very well off the admission. Do you think that was calculated? Do you think the retailers were thinking, we'll get in now before it all goes? I mean, those shares have inevitably had a little impact along along with the rest of the sector. So actually, their their IPOs suddenly don't look as good, perhaps. But to what extent do you really think that was a factor in their minds? as the broker that floated jewels, um, mm-hmm. we, we, we could say, I mean, uh, to be fair, you know, the shares are still, I think we actually officially initiated this morning. So shares are, I think, 170, floated at 150. So, you know, they're not as high as they had been, but they're still well up. And, and for the retailers, actually, it wasn't, you know, that no one expected Brexit to happen, frankly. Yeah. Um, so it's not as though they were trying to get in. It was more about, you know, whether you, you float. Obviously, summer's not a particularly active time for the markets. You either come before summer, you go afterwards. So yeah, you saw a window where a couple a couple took it, but it was more about that than it was about you know sort of Brexit fears or anything else. I also wanted to talk briefly about online retail. I know that you and I have spoken in the past quite in detail on on that subject because it's obviously a huge game changer for the industry. Um, I think it's interesting in light of Brexit, though, particularly when you're talking about currency and obviously the weakening of sterling and what that might mean for certain retailers. The immediate one coming to mind, obviously, is ASOS. But I I saw in a note as well that Boohoo is um, is quite naturally hedged. Um, I mean, maybe you can just sort of explain in simple terms what that, you know, what a weakening in sterling actually means for retailers. And if they are operating globally through websites is that advantageous or not yeah i mean it can be absolutely i mean you know we we touched obviously on the on the the input cost side of it clothing retailers in particular tend to buy the dollars forward by quite a long way as the collections are put together so we we know most of the general merchandise guys are are covered in towards autumn winter next year so that the input price isn't a problem but if you're exporting of course you know you're potentially you could pass that straight on to consumers. And that's exactly what ASOS have done. ASOS have already reloaded the prices, you know, particularly looking at the states. 
and, and looking at Europe and, and using that to actually drive demand. So, you know, your choices, you, you can take more margin or you can put it into price. And, you know, the, the online guys tend to be quite live. Obviously, you, you know, you, you're selling in the now and they're, they're using that as, as an opportunity. So I think you'll see actually an acceleration. You know, we've talked about a wider acceleration in the economy and exports. The online retailers are absolutely going to be delivering that. An interesting point that I don't see a lot of people talking about, and maybe it's because it's not a point at all, but it has occurred to me that plenty of retailers, particularly on the shop floor and and things like that, will employ a number of people from Europe, potentially, as part of our freedom of movement, obviously, that we've been enjoying up till now. To what extent do you think there's another sort of labour issue in the near term? Obviously, we've had to negotiate the national living wage this year, which was talked about a lot pre-referendum. Do you think that's something that they're thinking about? Or do you think at the moment it's likely that we're going to negotiate some sort of movement terms where hopefully they'll be unaffected? Yeah, I mean, you know, politics is my sort of specialism, as it were. <laughs> but, um, you yeah, know, there is a lot of, uh, you know, labour, uh, European labour, particularly in warehousing, actually. Um, and whether that's, you know, sort of Sports Direct, obviously talked about a lot. But, you know, using the Sports Direct example, I mean, you know, the primary language on signage in in the warehouse is Polish. Uh, then it's Latvian, then it's English. So, you know, th- there's a lot, and that's not sports direct specific, that could be true. You know, if you look at ASOS or Amazon or, you know, a, a lot of agency workers going through warehouses tend to be European immigration labour. So that is potentially a threat. But then, you know, I've not seen anyone say that, you know, we're going to pull up the drawbridge and kick out people that are here. So I think it's unlikely to be much of an issue, to be honest. You know, obviously, we'll see how, how things go. But I'd be, I'd be surprised if that was going to be a problem for them. But living wage is still... Uh, it's still a big issue to be hurdled. And, and obviously, it's much harder when your top line's under pressure. I mean, you're trying to sort of mitigate that. Yeah. And also the price hike now, I suppose, might be more than people had anticipated initially, if, like you say, you're trying to offset some sort of currency weakness by raising prices. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, we, we're assuming that we are going to raise prices. But again, you know, will the consumer take to a, a rise in prices? And, and will all retailers move in the same direction? Because there are some, back to our structural growth retailers, yeah, you know, who've got much much stronger margin structures, and if you're you're Ted Baker, you know clearly it's it's you're not you're not in the sort of Primark pricing, and therefore the the dollar impact is is you know is is less, you know less relevant, should we say, to your your customer, and you know are you going to necessarily pass that on? You know maybe not. You know we've already talked about you know likes of Asos and Boohoo will use it to their advantage. Uh, you mentioned Jules. Jules also has that opportunity. You know in, in the states to actually use it to to change their proposition or actually to accelerate their investment because it's effectively costing them less. So, they're, they're, you know, it's not it's not all negative. And I think, again, you look at the share price falls across the sector, what we haven't seen is a sorting out that sort of wheat from the chaff again. Um, yeah, there's a lot of big stock falls, you know, stocks down 30%, 40% on, on the fear of what's to come. Now, you mentioned before, is it going to be 2008? I think we're in a very, very different position than 2008. You know, clearly we're, we're facing a slowdown, but if you look, you know, companies were much more, much more geared, the retail sector. We ended up with a couple of sort of rescue rights issues. Well, actually, balance sheets are now much stronger. The consumer as well was arguably in a, in a tougher financial position where, you, you, you know, disposable incomes were under pressure. Unemployment was already moving. Well, those things haven't happened yet. You know, we're talking about a vacuum, really where investment isn't being made and jobs aren't being created and how that will ultimately filter through. And if you look at the, the economist's forecast, no one's talking about you know GDP at minus five. People are talking about it, you know, it flattening off. And it's a very, very different position. So you know, yes, you should be factoring in the risk of, of like-for-likes declining. But if you've got a business where you know, 60% of your earnings are coming from overseas uh, and those shares are coming off, then it's going to create an opportunity. And it, it, it probably will be an opportunity to pick up the good global growth retailers in this sort of a market. What we're ultimately saying is that this is a sector now that's primed for re-rating if you're willing to pick the right stock. What is it in your mind that retailers have to have in order to weather this storm? What what do their balance sheets have to look like? What does their product range have to look like? And what essentially do they have to offer both consumers and investors? Well, it comes back to exactly how we started, actually, which was, you know, the sector before this was in a, you know, a bit of a sort of transitionary year. And it's that sifting process. So what ultimately it's about having what the consumer wants at the right pl- price. Uh, and whether that, you know, is it, something like B&M bargains in value, 
where it's clearly a value proposition and a tougher retail environment would be would arguably more welcome for them than, than other areas of the sector. Or it's those that are, are delivering you know, online growth incrementally. You know, Online for most retailers is basically substitutional. For a handful, and again, it's back to the same, same names, those structural growth guys, it has been incremental to their business. They are generating and, and recruiting new customers online and getting additional spend to their, their existing customers. It tends to be a lot of the fashion guys. So people like Ted or, or Supergroup, or obviously the online specialists like Asos and Boohoo. So, you know, for, for those retailers where they've got a solid proposition, double-digit growth, strong margin structures, they're taking market share, they're extremely well-placed. You know, there will be obviously recovery stories in, in, in the sector as a whole. Some of the, you know, if you take, you know, the, the, the car retailers, I mean, clearly we've not seen a slowdown yet. They're all trading on five, six times PE. Now, will we see a slowdown in car sales? I think we will do. But again, the market's changed from 2008. The majority of cars are purchased on on effectively a lease. Uh, PCP, you can't defer that lease. At the end of your three years, if you want a car, you're going to have to roll in again or put out quite a, a sizable deposit. So the chance of, uh, you know, if you go back to 2008, people deferred car purchases. You're not going to be able to do that now. You might choose to you know, downgrade the car you're driving, but I'd be very surprised if we see the sort of falls, you know, 25, 30% falls in vehicles that we saw in 2008-9. Very unlikely to happen again. Finally, I asked John Human to get specific on his company knowledge to better understand what he thinks makes a good retailer in this kind of environment. We'll go big. Let's talk about Amazon. It's been a topic this year, at least, that has barely left the headlines if if you're a retail correspondent. If you're talking about supermarkets, you're talking about Amazon. If you're talking about general retail, you're talking about Amazon. If you're talking about discounters, you're talking about Amazon. It really does have its finger in every single pie. To what extent do you think that the threat of Amazon, or, or let's describe it more perhaps as the monopoly of Amazon, is real and to what extent do you think eventually we'll just be buying everything on Amazon? Yeah, I think it's very real and I think we've already seen uh, the impact of the the rise of Amazon on the high street. So, you know, where is HMV today? doesn't really exist in the way that it did before when it was a listed business. I mean, again, that went bust. It's very difficult now to walk down the high street and buy a CD. Waterstones, certainly not the business it once was, had to scale back quite considerably. Uh, People do still like to buy stroll into a bookshop and browse but but you know it doesn't have the presence it it once did it's not a public company anymore you know you have some specialists out there so you've got things like daunt books which is a mm-hmm. sort of small scale books retailer but you know they've got to really up their game they've got to do something different to to take on the the convenience and uh, and the price competition that amazon brings i think it's a shame what's happened and i think amazon have been quite ruthless and merciless in the way that they've targeted particular niches so you know when i first started buying music on amazon they were cheap you know you could buy a cd for a lot less than it cost you if you were to buy the same cd from hmv and hmv of course with the store estate to support couldn't compete with that it was inevitable what was going to happen there and now that HMV has essentially gone, it does have a few stores left under private ownership, Amazon's pricing is not as competitive as it once was. So I think it, it will eat a market through, through aggressive pricing, uh, and once it's got that market in its grips, it can charge what it likes. Effectively, I think what Amazon is doing is interesting, not least because of its sort of online monopoly status. But like we were saying earlier, it's now experimenting with physical stores. And I think if the bookstores that you mentioned, Waterstones, Foils, Daunts, if they had anything left to offer that Amazon couldn't replicate, it was in-store events and things like that, bringing people together, free marketing for authors, etc., etc., if Amazon starts opening physical bookstores, you know, they're suddenly in that market as well. And chances are they're going to do it pretty well. So in terms of what they can really do that Amazon can't do, I feel like that field is narrowing dramatically. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Foils because actually they're expanding at the moment. Yeah, and is, personally, Foils is my favourite. <laughs> it's good to see. It's good to see. And I think, you know, as a shopper, I think people have obviously benefited enormously from the low prices that online shopping has brought. But I think Perhaps there is a realisation starting to creep in that there is a a longer term price to pay for Mm -hmm. this. So perhaps it is worth supporting shops on the high street if you want to be able to still walk down a high street in five years time and actually be able to buy some of the things that you want. So I I don't think it's all one way traffic forever for Amazon if 
people do start to wise up to this. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia is an interesting segue because that brings us really to one of the most provocative companies I cover, which is M&S. It's been a huge year for them in terms of a big management change at the top. Steve Rowe was was appointed, Mark Bolland was out, and Steve Rowe is a lifer. He's been there since the dawn of time, I think, really dawn of his time anyway. He started as a Saturday boy and he's now in the hot seat Fair to say so far, he's not in an untypical manner, right? A lot of CEOs in a recovery situation do this. They throw the kitchen sink at it to try and go back to zero and start again. Steve Rowe can and can't do that to different extents. You know, he's dealing with a massive brand that's got huge amounts of sort of political and, and as I say, nostalgic sort of empathy going on with it. But equally, he is taking some fairly drastic measures with that. We we saw this week about the job cuts that he's making to head office, 500 jobs to go. In terms of price, he's determined to overhaul that quality as well, trying to bring those two things in much sort of finer tune with each other. I think ultimately the question is, how much do you believe he can do this? Can he turn it around? It's an enormous job. It's an enormous company. As I said earlier, it's the largest clothing retailer in the UK by market share. I think uh, only next comes anywhere near. Cutting those jobs at head office cannot have been an easy decision because Marks and Spencer's staff have, in many cases, been there for a very, very long time. It is the kind of company where you, even today perhaps, could get a job for life, as Mm -hmm. as Steve Rowe demonstrates. So yeah, that is a real change of culture there, I would say. Uh, Difficult decisions. They've had, you know, not much luck on the management front in recent years I would say there's been some missteps in terms of the people running the clothing side of the business uh, I won't name any names but uh, but but we know they didn't get it quite right and clothing sales are on the decline still even though they remain very large yeah it's it's a huge beast I mean the food side is doing well and that's an encouraging point because Steve Rowe was in charge of food for a very long time and he really was credited with turning that business, well, not turning it around so much because it was always fairly stable, but basically taking it through the recession and making sure that it was still appealing. The whole sort of, you know, the meal, dining in meals for £10, that whole offer was sort of his brainchild and, and he was really sort of patted on the back for that one. And I think that's ultimately what probably got him this job in the end. I think food is what saved Marks and Spencer's really in, in terms of, you know, I don't think it was going to disappear uh, from the high street but i think uh, it could have disappeared as a public company and we know probably a decade ago actually that uh, that philip green tried to buy marks mm. and spencers when it was having a, a a share price wobble at that point and uh, you know it was saved by stuart rose i think food saved that business i think it's an interesting one i kind of I, I shop in there because i have one around the corner mm-hmm. but i do think it's quite expensive it is but, quite but expensive. it doesn't seem to put people off no so. i think it ties into a much wider narrative at the moment which is that if we go into another recession next year which i admit is looking less and less likely by the day but if it happens what businesses tend to do well in a recession it's actually the upper end of leisure companies that did mm. best through the last recession post 2008 so things like M&S food it's effectively you get that customer who perhaps cancels a holiday because they know they can't necessarily afford to take the kids to Disneyland or whatever it is but they refuse to compromise entirely and the way to sort of meet in the middle is every Friday night or every weekend we're going to have a blowout meal or we're going to go to the cinema or something like that and so the upper end leisure companies tend to do quite well out of that we could see that again yeah no, no, it wouldn't surprise me at all but uh, no, I think Marcus Spencer uh, in terms of his food business and more generally I, you know I think I, I mentioned earlier you know, I thought online was, was encouraging people to shop around and you know find, find better prices but I also think shoppers are creatures of habit uh, and I think the reason people continue returning to some of these stores like Marcus Spencer's even though it's food is quite expensive is because that's what they've always done mm. another one that people keep keep returning to and it's always a bit of a mystery why is Debenhams what do you I like thought? Debenhams yeah I like Debenhams. I know we've talked about it in the past yeah I think it's an interesting business and we, we had a quick chat about this yesterday and um, you know I've seen Debenhams change both from an analyst perspective and a shopping perspective I think Marks and Spencer by contrast was very slow to get its online offering off the ground it didn't feel like it was joined up in its thinking about where it needed to go as a retailer. I'm talking sort of five or six years ago. Whereas I think Debenhams, you know, it always knew it should be doing something. You know, should it be expanding its estate? Yes, it, it should, but in, in you know, in a sort of measured way, which I think it's done. Uh, should it be going online? You know, what what were the what is the power of the kind of kind of own brand stuff that it that it owns? And it works with a number of designers to to create interesting ranges there. I think it's been quite a leader in, in that respect. 
So yeah, I think I think they've they've been trying to do the right things for a long time. And what I would say is they haven't necessarily always worked. As it's a fast moving market, and other mm. people are trying to move forward as well. But but I admire for the uh, attempts to really engage with the modern shopper in the way they have and, and the, the, the modern retail landscape. And I think they'll get it right one day. Yeah, I mean, change is coming on that front as well. Michael Michael Sharp is out, chief executive there. There was a bit of a rumble as to whether it was a shareholder vote to get him out. They were not particularly happy with the progress of last year. However, that being said, they had one of the most successful Christmas trading periods ever. And he was in the, in the top job at the time. So whether you can totally credit him with that, I don't know. But ultimately, he seems to be tidying them over at least until they get their fresh management in. So yeah, possible another one to watch. Yeah, I think so. I'll tell you at Christmas, interestingly, you know, if you're stuck for a Christmas present, you can walk into Debenhams and definitely come out with something. There you go. So for investors, it might not all be doom and gloom as far as the retail sector goes. Now that the political dust has started to settle and weather patterns have normalised and Black Friday appears to have been a bumper success, it seems British shoppers are as consumer hungry as ever. Could it be one last hurrah ahead of the potential price rises in the new year? Very possibly. Is it a recession like 2008? Doesn't seem so. One thing's for sure, however, the retail sector is one where quality speaks and investors will be asked to dig deep in those pockets in order to bag themselves a decent return. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 